Todo el mundo. But that was really. 
and back together. And for old times sake, let's go do some shows and see how it, see what happens. Uh, just, just, just for fun. And at the time, the original bass player was, was Jimmy Bain and Jimmy was alive. Jimmy has since passed on, but, uh, he was alive. And so the, 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 the four of them with Andrew went out and did these shows and they went far better than expected. Um, before, we, before they knew it, they ended up with a, a record deal and they made a record and, uh, Actually, right when the record was released is when Jimmy passed away. Uh, and uh, so at that time, they asked me if I would um, come on board simply to finish out the uh, show dates that they had committed to. And once we started doing those dates and we started playing, we realized that there was some chemistry uh, in the, in, within the four of us. And we decided to keep the band going. Um, yes, I uh, I got to witness that when I saw you guys perform recently, and you really have um, sort of a, a fire together that I'm sure is well practiced, but it also feels spontaneous. Yeah, um, we're it's it maybe because we've been doing this so long, but I think we're all really good friends. We really like each other. Uh, you know, we have great shows and then sometimes we have not so great shows but the not so great shows are funny i mean we laugh at them you know it's 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 uh, it's all part and parcel of the of, of what makes a performance you're always going to have shows you're happy with and then you're going to have shows with which you know it's things go wrong or whatever but you 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 can't take them too seriously I and mean, you have to laugh at them and you have to say you know oh well i mean if it's something that that, that you did then you learn from it of course but if it's something that's beyond your control, then it's beyond your control. Um, so I think that comes across. People always say you guys look like you're having a lot of fun on stage. We really are. There's, there's a spontaneity to that to that fun. We we clown around on stage and off stage. Um, humor is a big part of this band. And, yeah, uh, I think that's those. important. Yeah, yeah, it's, it really is. And after all the bands that I've been in over the years. Um, you know, my biggest regret is probably looking back and, and, and realizing that there wasn't enough humor. Uh, you know, we're not, we're very fortunate. We're able to do something we really love doing and we love to, it, it, it's one of the only careers in the world where people actually come to watch you work, you know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, how much better, you know, how much better could it be? Um, and then, you know, to have to, to, to be overly serious about these things, I think, is, is, is foolish and it's immature. So, um, I, you know, I'll give you a little bit more background on, on, on myself being in the band um, in terms of uh, uh, bass players. You know, Jimmy Bain was a ter terrific bass player. He was a, a, an influence as well. He was a little bit older than me, but we were very good friends as well. I lived with Jimmy when I first moved to L.A. and because I played with Ozzy and, and Ozzy and, and Ronnie Dio both sang for Black Sabbath, we were sister bands. And, huh. and there was a lot of respect uh, between the counterparts in those sister bands. So between the drummers and between the guitar players and the bass players. And so I think as, as uh, having that respect as a foundation meant that when we got together and finally worked together, um, there, was a, there was already a level of, uh, of admiration and respect for each of us that we each have for each other. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great place to be now. Um, and you've had quite a storied career uh, early 
in your career before going on the road and recording with Ozzy Osbourne, you worked with one of my favorites, Jimmy Page. And uh, I know this was post Led Zeppelin as he was embarking on a solo career. And I know that you had something to do with Swan Song. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what it was like to work with an icon like Jimmy? I know that you grew up listening to his music just like me. Yeah, yeah. Big fan, big fan of Led Zeppelin, big fan of Jimmy Page, of course. Um, and, uh, and of course, as a bass player, I was a big fan of John Paul Jones as well. Um, and so uh, it was probably early 80s. Uh, I was in a band, uh, a, a band by the name of Wildlife, which was better known as Simon Kirk's band after Bad Company. We were signed to Swan Song. We were managed by Peter Grant. And it was through that that eventually I got to meet Jimmy. Um, I got a phone call one day uh, that said that Jimmy was looking to, um, you know, get a new band together, put something together. But initially he really needed to start playing again. He'd been uh, away from, from the music business after the, um, the, the passing of, of John Bonham. And uh, I think he kind of, uh, uh, you know, became a bit of a recluse, for, for want of a better word. And, and, and shut himself away for, for, for quite some time. And when he came back out and wanted to start playing again, well, that's, that was his, his, his interest, that was his desire. And I got a phone call from uh, Phil Carlo, a dear friend of mine who was Led Zeppelin's tour manager right at the end after, after Richard Cole. Uh, and he said, Phil, Jimmy wants to start playing and would you be interested in, in coming down having a play with him? And I said, of course I would, you know, I'd, I'd love to, um, you know. Hang on a second. Let me think about this for a while, and then I'll let you know. It was, it was <laughs> right off the top. Right. Of course, I'm going to do this. And we got together very, you know, a few a couple of days later at uh, Nomis Studios in London uh, with Chris Slade, um, who ended up as a drummer in the firm. And we started playing. We literally, Jimmy walked in one day, and uh, there we were, the three of us. And we started. There was a. There, I have to tell you, there was a. There was a real. Uh, uh, I don't know if anxiety is the word, but it was, it was very tense. It was very tense from my perspective because I'm playing with the guy that at the first time I've ever met him. You oh know, wow! You know, and uh, and I, I'm a big big fan, and um, uh, so from my perspective, I was very anxious, and I also wanted it to work. And as I as we found out uh, shortly after, um, Jimmy was. Quite, had, had, had quite a lot of anxiety as well. It had been the first time since he picked up a guitar in a long time. And he was quite nervous about the situation. He verbalized that to us. And once he did, I think the ice was broken. And we got into having some fun. We played some songs, some of our favorite songs. We played some early Zeppelin stuff. We played uh, a lot of favorite tunes. <laughs> we played Train Kept to Rolling, which I understand was the first song that Zeppelin ever played when they first got into a room to see if it would work. Yeah, I mean, that was a Yardbird staple, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, we, we, um, we also, I got a, a chance to really see what Jimmy liked because he wanted to play certain songs. And a lot of what he wanted to do was, was to play some early rock and roll, rockabilly kind of classics. Uh, and I had a, a, a lot of background in that. I was a big um, uh, 50s Americana music fan. So I knew Scotty Moore and I knew Bill Black and I knew 
uh, all of these, all of the music that they did. So we, we found ourselves playing early Elvis songs and we played all kinds of things. Well, that must have just been amazing. I mean, to just kind of jam with Jimmy in his studio and some other great musicians because he never, um, you know, he never compromises on musicianship. Did he ever tell you what it was about you that, you know, that he wanted you to perform with him and record? Yeah, I don't think it was, it was, it wasn't really set up that way. It was set up, you know, Phil Carlo, who was, uh, I mentioned before, uh -huh. Phil called me, he knew I was a big fan. Jimmy knew I wanted to meet him. He had tried to uh, come down to the studio, his, his recording studio when we'd been working there prior and we had missed each other, but he had come down there because I think, you know, he'd been told that I, I was, I really wanted to meet him. Um, so there was this, we have to get together sometime kind of vibe that was going on. And it could have been, um, you know, it could have been something that didn't work out as much as it was something that did work out. We just went into a room, there was an admiration, there was a connection, there was connection with, with favorite music, there was obviously a lot of respect, and we started playing. Um, if, if it hadn't have worked out, I'm sure I would have been told, hey, okay, this is great, thanks for coming down, Jimmy'd like to play with some different people, but he never said that. Um, so we just carried on. And we started hanging out, we started going out at night in the evenings and, and started to, you know, go around clubs and, and see bands and, and uh, I'm sure these were things that Jimmy hadn't done in a long time. Nobody knew who he was. It was, it was not very recognizable. And, uh, and even times when uh, I would try to say to somebody, uh, oh, this is, this is Mr. Jimmy Page over here. And they'd say, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like today where, you know, everyone knows who, their favorite musician looks like because of social media or, I mean, even MTV really changed that quite a bit, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, there was a degree of anonymity back then. You could go out, you could go anywhere and walk into places and, and uh, not, you know, people wouldn't know who you were. And even if you told them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't <laughs> connect, connect it together. And these days that has completely changed. I mean, you can't have anonymity in a band. Uh, and I think it works against you. You know, it, it's, if you, you, if you, uh, if you write, uh, uh, through social media to, to, to an artist or to a musician or to somebody who you want to, to, uh, communicate with and they don't respond, people get angry, you know, they create yeah. a negative fan. And back in the day, I don't think that anyone, you know, I, I, I actually did write a letter to Jimmy Page right when John Bonham died. And the letter was something along the lines of, if you ever want to put a band together, perhaps you'd be so kind as to throw my hat and my name into the hat. I'd love to come down and have a play or something of that sort. And I sent it off. And the only place I could find to send it was I looked on the back of a Zeppelin album and there was an address for Swan Song Records at 484 Kings Road in Chelsea. And that's where I sent that letter. And I, I, did I expect to get a response? No. Do you know what happened? It was amazing. I yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, a, you know, you put that out there in the universe and it eventually came back to you. Well, actually, yeah, I was, I was making a bad joke, but you're absolutely right. Um, but at the time, I didn't expect to get a response and I certainly didn't get a response. You know, I never, it, you just, you know, it was just, let me throw it out there and see what happens. However, as you've correctly said, I think if you put things out there into the universe, uh, 
somehow or other, these things kind of come back to you if that's what you really want. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know that. Um... And how how, how ironic and unusual for something to actually transpire that way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a pretty great feather in your cap, although I know you uh, you chose to move on from that, but I want to get to that a little bit later and kind of circle back to something you said a few minutes ago about being managed by Peter Grant, who um, is an iconic, um, larger-than-life, both literally and figuratively, um, in the world of rock uh, managers, um, did his reputation precede him uh, when you met him and had he mellowed over the years? I mean, tell me a little bit about what that's like to not only be managed by Peter Grant, but to get to know him. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get to know him very well uh, and not as well as I would have liked to have done. There was something, there were a lot of terrific things about Peter. Um, recently, uh, I was, I was, uh, I read his uh, his biography that that was uh, um, that came out about a year ago. And yes, I read that too. Very uh, extremely exhaustive and well researched uh, biography. Yeah, so it, it's it's one of it's supposedly one of the most accurate books ever written about anything to do with Zeppelin, according to people who were in the camp. Um, and there was a lot that that there was a lot of things that that I would have loved to have got to, uh, to, 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 to know about Peter. Um, my knowledge of him, my personal knowledge of him was just a, a drop in the ocean in comparison. But he did so many terrific things. He was the first manager to really start to dictate uh, the contracts on behalf of the bands. And he changed the future of uh, music management. You know, up until that point, I think that promoters would basically hire bands and say, this is what you're going to get. And he changed that perspective around to where an artist would turn out to the promoter and say, we want you to promote this show and this is what you're going to get. Uh, and that he also looked out for his bands. He was very protective. Um, he was uh, somebody who would not allow anyone to take advantage of the artists. And that was the most important thing. And he was also very protective of them from a publicity point of view. I think he was, because of his actions, uh, there, were, there was that establishment of a great deal of mystique about Led Zeppelin. They're very limited interviews, limited appearances, limited photographs. And uh, there was this underlying, who, who are these guys? We have to find out who they are. And there's nothing that makes people more curious than curiosity, curiosity itself. You know, trying to find out about this mysterious band, who who these people were, and I think that contributed a lot. Um, so, yes, his pre his reputation definitely preceded him. And when I met him, uh, I was thrilled. I was thrilled to meet him. He'd uh, he lost a lot of weight the first time I saw him. He was a, a very very big fella, but he had. Uh, uh, been quite overweight at certain times in his life and when I met him he was uh, he was quite almost quite thin but mm. still extremely impressive um, and uh, he had amazing eyes I always remember that like piercing eyes mm -hmm. uh, so you couldn't really look away you know it was like uh, um, I could see if somebody was uh, in a confrontation with him uh, uh, that uh, those they, they would find themselves very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> very intimidating. Yes, we saw some of that for sure. And the song remains the same Led Zeppelin movie. 
right right where he's yeah. sort of played as like a you know 40s gangster right <laughs> exactly yeah perfect uh persona for him uh back then and uh he certainly had a a full and fantastic life and um yeah if anyone's interested in not only led zeppelin but the history of rock that's a terrific biography to read yeah was yeah. It bring it bring it on home i think it's called right yes mm -hmm. i'm actually quoted in that in a couple of places in the book as well wow so, yeah okay. well i didn't know you then but i had listened to the audiobook and um yeah i was i learned a lot about the music business from that and it was very entertaining as well mm. Now you, uh, as I said, uh, decided to divert from Jimmy Page's band that he was putting together. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that must have been an extremely difficult decision. What, how did that come about? It was difficult. It, due to um, knowing somebody who knew somebody else, etc., I got a, ended up in, um, in an audition with Ozzy. And um, uh, I got asked, would I come down and have a play? And of course, I, yeah, why not? You know, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I went and had a play, and to make a long story short, I got the gig with Ozzy. At which point, I had a, a, a an awkward decision to make, um, which was: do I go off with Ozzy or do I um, uh, stay with Jimmy? I knew Jimmy wanted to put the ba a permanent band together, but I wasn't sure when that would happen. And so I I spoke to Jimmy about it, and I said, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And I'm not really sure what to do. And he said, well, it's going to be a while before we really get our thing together. Um, Paul Rogers is supposed to come down here. He's earmarked to play with this, but it's early days yet. And we can't really put a date on it. So if it's something you want to do sooner rather than later, then that, you know, obviously Ozzy seems to want to go straight out and, and work. But if not, we'd love to have you here. And... Um, and I elected to do that. I, but I stayed. I stayed. Uh, I stayed in touch with Jimmy. I stayed friends with Jimmy. Uh, we got together many times after that. And uh, um, you know, I can't say enough great things about him. He's he's a wonderful person. He he really is terrific and one of the the greatest people I've ever met in this business. Um, I've met very. I've met a lot of famous people in this business, but he really stands out as a terrific a terrific person. I have a a, a lot of time for Jimmy. Um, now, speaking of megastars, of course, Ozzy Osbourne is one in sort of a different way. Um, and he became that way in the 80s, um, you know, more so, I think, than when he was with Black Sabbath. And, you know, maybe it's because he was part of the Hollywood scene back then, or maybe it was the advent of MTV. But um, in any case, that's when you were with his band. So, you know, what was it like kind of jumping onto that Ozzy Osbourne crazy train? It was it was quite different. I mean, I, the, the whole Zeppelin thing had, a, as we said, an element of sort of mystique for me, and and I was was very much drawn to it. Um, Sabbath was a was a, was a lot more um, um, kind of in your face. I mean, it was it was what it was, and uh, um, the band was somewhat underground. I would say um, they you know metal or classic rock or whatever you want to call it has it's always there it just sort of it tends to go underground sometimes then it surfaces and it goes underground again it's like the loch ness monster you know <laughs> but it's always there and uh so when i went to play with ozzy ozzy was starting to become much more um um 
publicly known here in the United States, more so than I suppose in England. So there was that transition. And then with what happened with us and with MTV, all of a sudden, you know, we had some, we had a hit that was a, a, a very much a sort of pop rock, easily accessible kind of song that found its way onto MTV. And that meant that we were projected right into the front and center of the public eye, as opposed to being underground. Um, and so there was a double uh, transition for me. There was a transition of going from from the you know the quiet cellars of uh, of recording uh, rehearsal studios in London to all of a sudden being very much publicly known, certainly within the rock community, and then all of a sudden transitioning to the sort of more of the run of the mill, middle of the road pop community, um, and uh, both those things were. Um, were, were very rapid. I felt like a hand came and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck or by the collar or something and started dragging me forwards very, very fast. There's a certain kind of spotlight uh, that comes, I imagine, with being with Ozzy's band, not only for the quality of the music, and he's an incredible singer, but his antics, I think. He was more famous for just how crazy out there he was than anything else at that time. Oh, absolutely. It was, and it was all practical jokes. I mean, everything was practical jokes. And, uh, um, you know, people would say sometimes to me, well, you know, Ozzy, what's he like? Is he a very dark character? Is he this? And he was very much a joker. I mean, it was, it was, uh, everything was sort of done in humor, but there was always this, 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 let's see what we can get away with now type of, type of uh, thought process going into all of his humor, you know? Yeah, I mean, like always trying to top himself with one more, you know, really outrageous stunt, um, you know, but I mean, when it comes to the music, of course, we know that you co-wrote Ozzy Osbourne's, uh, one of his biggest hits from the Ultimate Sin album, Shot in the Dark. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of that song and how did it come together as we finally heard it on the record? Well, yeah, it, it, it was written a, quite a, a little while before then. Uh, and I, I had started writing the mu music at, at my at my mom's piano. So we got a piano, and I used to play the piano from time to time. And so I was messing around at the time with a lot of kind of jazz fusion type of chords. I've been listening to a lot of jazz fusion, and uh, and I think there's actually some Al Jarreau material. And I was I loved some of the chord progressions that were on some of those tracks. And I was messing around with the chords and playing around, and I it came up with piece of music that went from the you know went from a, a verse through to a chorus idea and uh, then wrote some lyrics around it had some melody around that and that's kind of how the song came together um, and then you know I'd taken that to we'd actually uh, uh, played that in a, a, a couple of bands I, I did a version of it with 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 wildlife uh, but for whatever reason, they, they wanted to rewrite the lyrics and they wanted to make some changes, so they did, and then we recorded a demo, and that was the end of that. And then after that band, I took it to several other bands, um, and uh, it never got any traction. And then it wasn't until I was playing with Ozzy, um, we, well, we, I say we, the record company, felt that they were missing one song, 
And so they started looking around. Do you have any ideas? Does, you know, they asked, they asked everyone in the band if they had any ideas. They thought about doing cover songs as well. Ozzy hmm. didn't really want to do a cover song, but uh, they did suggest two or three of them. And then, you know, they turned around and said uh, to Randy and myself, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I've got, you know, I've got three things I can play. I played them three songs. And Shot in the Dark was the one that they picked up on. Uh, so we, you know, pulled up, put the, pulled the song up and uh, the original version that I wrote with the original lyrics. And um, we started to rework it around Ozzy's very unique phrasing. So, you know, obviously he has a, a different way of, of phrasing things. So I had to kind of make some adjustments and, and rewrites. And then Ozzy and I worked a little bit on, on some of the other parts in the song and it became the version that everyone's familiar with. Yeah, I mean, it sounds just like a natural fit for his voice, but, um, you know, like anything, I guess there's always uh, working and reworking and tweaking until it's just right. Uh, how long did it take to actually record it? Not long, not long at all. No, we, you know, we worked it up in, a, in a, uh, an afternoon in a rehearsal room just to, to get exactly, get it exactly where we wanted it to be. And then, um, uh, I got together with Ozzy in person a couple of times and we tweaked some other parts. We changed some other bits and pieces. Um, uh, we came up with a, a different, uh, um, a, 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 an additional part that went into the solo. Uh, and then we again re-rehearsed re it and then we, we went and cut it. That was it. So wow. it didn't take long to put together at all. The whole album came together quite, quite rapidly. I think back in the day, um, People used to um, do pre-production. They would go into a rehearsal room and then they would run through the song several times and they'd get everything exactly where they wanted it because recording studios were so expensive, first of all. You know, you'd be in the studio for $2,000 or $2,500 a day. Uh, that's not the place to have rehearsals. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You know? So, um, and these days I think now, now that there are, you know, recording sit systems are so abundant, um, People don't do that much pre-production anymore. They actually go in, they say, well, let's just go ahead and cut it and start cutting records. And that's the first year you're playing them and you're taking the time to do it. It's, I guess it's a different way of working. I don't know if one's better than the other, but from a song perspective, I think it's better to actually rehearse and have your pre-production well in place before you, you know, start turning microphones on. Well, back then the video was king and of course the uh, shot in the dark video is just so much fun. I, you know, of course saw it many times back in the day and recently revisited it. And I, I love the footage on Sunset Boulevard and on stage and, you know, Ozzy kind of looks like a heavy metal Liberace <laughs> glowing <laughs> in his sequins and you and your purple sequin jacket and your purple face and your flying hair. I mean, it's such a great image and sort of a amber trapped in time and of course julie gray the wonderful video vixen so can you uh tell us a little bit about what it was like shooting that video uh yeah absolutely it was the first time i was ever in la so we went to la to film that video and that was a very exciting time for me um i, I always sort of knew i'd be living in los angeles from i don't know why maybe i lived there in a past life or something but i knew i seem to know a lot about the place I seem to have a connection with uh, a, a sort of mental connection with it, if that makes any sense. 
so it was it was quite exciting to be there um fleur tamaya who made all of our clothes she was fantastic and she really stylized that from from some ideas that uh, i think ozzy had initially he had uh, he, he he it was he who had come up with this idea with this kind of lots of glittery and sparkly stuff and so she had realized or executed on that on those ideas and come up with these outfits and we we really kind of laid the ground for a lot of bands that uh, started to adopt that that in in what became known as 80s glam uh glam metal or whatever yeah um, and when we did the video it was uh it, we originally did it at uh, Culver City Studios, which is now Sony Studios, or Washington Studios, I think it was called, which is now, which is now Sony in Culver City. And um, uh, we had a sound stage built. There were probably five, six hundred people in there. Um, Julie was there. Dweezil Zappa was there. Uh, various other people would popped in here and there. And um, uh, it was a, a, it was a very, very long day. <laughs> I bet. But yeah. I think we played that song maybe 28 times, I want to say. It was, we started very early in the morning and we did not finish until about midnight. And by the end of that day, I think we were all completely pooped. You know? But it, when we saw the finished product, it was, it was tremendous. Uh, yeah, I mean, that really did become a popular video. But did you get to uh, kind of, were you ever at a bar or something and it came on? I mean, what was it like seeing that after the fact? and? getting to re-experience that 20 hour day again. I'd, you know, I don't know, I'd done videos before and then I'd always sort of imagined they'd be, I was very self-conscious about stuff like videos and photos because I think it's human nature to be, you see yourself, sure. your first impression is like, oh gosh, you know, is that me? It looks terrible. Uh, but um, this, was one the, this was one of the, probably the first video that I saw that I thought, wow, everyone looks fantastic in this. It looks amazing. And I couldn't stop watching it. We saw it back in London. First time I saw it was back in London. I was over at Ozzy and Sharon's house. And uh, he said, you have to see this. You have to see the video. So I went over to see it. And I remember that uh, Kelly was a little baby at the time. She was maybe a year and a half or two years old or something. And she was bouncing around in front of the TV. And, and Ozzy said, see, if, you've got, if a kid can dance to it, if a child can dance to it, it's going to be a hit. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember. I remember that. So, uh, and then when we saw it, all of a sudden, it was on all the time. I mean, it was on MTV for six months or something. Oh yeah, heavy rotation. Yep, heavy rotation. Um, well, I want to kind of circle back again to your uh, rockabilly roots because I know that throughout the '90s, you toured and recorded with Johnny Halliday, a singer yep. who was known as the French Elvis. Um, you know, honestly, I had not heard of him before I learned of your connection, which you know, it just goes to show how much in a bubble you know we are in the U.S. Here, I hadn't heard of him, but I looked him up, and you know, I mean, he sold millions of albums, and he was such a charismatic performer, and his career spanned decades. So, I mean, what was it like to be on tour with someone like that, who's completely different from Jimmy Page, completely different from Ozzy Osbourne, completely different from Billy Idol, and you know, I mean, it's it's a really cool experience, I think. So, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, he was called, you know, the French Elvis for. A good reason and and that was his career had spanned as you correctly said for five decades so right there there was uh there were about five decades of different styles that he went through in terms of music uh way back in the in the uh, uh 50s or 
whenever it was, I think his most of his music was was very much like, you know, early Elvis. In fact, I think his first two albums, I do believe Scotty Moore and Bill Black both played on the first two records because they were Elvis's Sun Sessions band. And so they decided to have them play on the French Elvis's um, uh, uh, tracks. You know, as, as a French singer, um, the uh, it's it's a very sort of intrinsic market. Um, French music doesn't really translate to the rest of the world, and English music doesn't really translate to France. So, so it was very much it was it was just this uh, it was a very built-in closed music scene. So what they did is any time that there were hits around the world in English or whatever, they would write similar hits sometimes even covers that were translated into French. And so that explains why Johnny had so many hits throughout those decades, as he was the guy that was having the hits with songs that were vaguely reminiscent of hits outside the, of, of France. And, and not just France, but French-speaking countries. So French Canada and Belgium and Switzerland, etc., etc. So, uh, yeah, it... it when we got to play with him, we got to play all these different styles. So I got to play 50s music, I got to play 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, with Johnny. Wow. Um, in fact, it's quite funny because in the, in the, in the 70s, in the 70s, um, one of the people that played on his records was Jimmy Page. Oh, really? And, yeah, Jimmy's, and, and I was out having a drink with Jimmy a few years later, and we, he was talking, he said, you know, when I was playing with Johnny, he said, oh, it's amazing, you know, when I played on Johnny Halliday's records, because Jimmy was a big session guy, you know, and they wanted somebody from, the, from that era, from that early, mid-60s to come and, you know, who was, a, who, was, who was the guy in England to come and play on Johnny's albums. And then later on, many people played with Johnny. Um, Hendrix played with Johnny. Uh, um, Mick Jones from Foreigner played with Johnny for I think seven or eight years before he started Foreigner. So he really had a lot of ter terrific people go through his his bands. But he was a wonderful guy. He was terrific. He was uh, uh, he he loved motorcycles. He liked going to the gym. He liked hanging out. He liked being cool um, and uh, going out and having drinks and and, and laughing and joking and. And that's, that's, that's everything I'm about. So we got on famously. <laughs> we had a great time. <laughs> and many times I would stay with him after we finished working. I'd stay in France or I'd stay in Saint-Tropez with him. And we would just, uh, just hang out, you know, um, became really good friends. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that's a great thing to be able to work for your friend, basically. Yeah, we did. And we did, I did four I can't remember if it was four. I think it's four albums. Four, four albums. Yeah. And then maybe as many tours, maybe five tours actually with Johnny. So that was, that took a few years and, um, but he was huge. I mean, the, the stage productions that we had were enormous. The Larida tour, I remember we played at the Bercy. I'd never seen a stage production like it. There were, there was a, a train coming in from one side of the stage and there was, I don't know what on the other side. And there was a big elevator that went up five stories in the middle of this. It was just nuts, huge production. They would build this thing. And, and, uh, you know, when we played there, we played in Paris there, we played at Bercy. Uh, and, uh, it was, uh, it was a 20,000 seater. And I remember we played it to 20 nights back to back and it was sold out. 
So it just gives you some idea of how big the guy was. And uh, he was the biggest, I think it was the fourth biggest selling artist in the history of music at that time. Uh, huh. And he was only uh, superseded by the Beatles, Elvis, and the, the number one guy who, uh, uh, who was Julio Iglesias. If you figure that, you know, how many countries in the world speak Spanish, it's that, that's, that's where that, that's where someone like Julio Iglesias becomes enormous because it just, uh, it's one, probably the most common language in the world, I would imagine. And he certainly had his moment in the U.S. I remember that duet that he did with Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to move forward into the uh, 21st century when you uh, you put out a couple of solo albums. And, um, you know, in spite of your wonderful metal acumen, they are not metal. They're more, I think melodic have some kind of a pop rock feel to them. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like to make that first record vibrate on your own? Um, well, you've, you've pretty much nailed it. Um, a lot of my influences growing up through the years came from other things than just classic rock. Um, maybe they came from more of the fundamental influences of classic rock, be they classical music or be they early rock or, or rock R&B blues or, or, or any of this, the stuff that I listen to, but also a lot of fusion, a lot of, um, you know, jazz fusion or rock fusion. Um, and frequently I would write ideas that didn't, that were not relevant to what I was doing at the time. And I'd put them to the side. I'd put them in, in one of those drawers, you know, where you keep all your songs and, um, uh, in the hope that one day, you know, I'll pull them out and use them for something else. And then one day I had enough songs to put together a, a, a collection, an aggregation of these songs, and that became Vibrate. Um, and I recorded that record as as a collection of these of these of these you know somewhat diverse songs. Um, and I, I really enjoy that kind of structure of songwriting. I was a huge Beatles fan. I was a huge uh, you know Elton John, David Bowie, early Bowie. Fan. I, mean, I love songs. I and mean, Bowie, I always saw Bowie as a as a as a as a folk lyricist more than anything else. And he would always work with these very unusual counterparts and come up with these unique things. Whether it was Mick Ronson or whether it was Robert Fripp or it was Adrian Ballou or it was uh, whoever he worked with. I mean, he was I always found this way of bringing together different elements to create something unique. And uh, so uh, that, that's kind of how Vibrate got together. When you exhausted that, uh, that gold mine of material, um, what was the impetus to do your next solo album, No Protection, which came along, I believe, five years later? Yeah, um, I never really exhausted it. I, I, I mean, if you look at my phone, there's probably 160 little bits and pieces of ideas of songs that I want to eventually develop. But um, the, the the No Protection album, that, that was different. That was, that was me taking count. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was like a snapshot. I, I wanted, everything had been going along just fine. And then all of a sudden I had a, a, a personal uh, tragedy or, or occurrence in that my dad passed away. And um, when this happened, it sort of stopped me in my tracks for a moment. And I found myself standing there trying to come to terms with what had just happened. And uh, there was a, all of a sudden there was a, 
an idea to have this this period of evaluation let me have a look let me be re retrospective for a second let me see where i am where, where am i standing where, where, where what is the lay of the land right now and i wanted to create a snapshot of that and that's what no protection was it was a bunch of songs that had that dealt with subjects of very personal subjects um and how i felt about them at that particular moment in time and the title no protection was was to do with uh you know everyone makes jokes about contraceptives but it's not about contraceptives and it's it's more about that there is no protection from certain events that are going to take place in your life and there's nothing you can do about them but when they do come up you have to give them the attention they deserve and you have to focus on them and you know i've, I've said to many friends that, that you know the, the loss of a parent is not something you ever get over it's just something you learn to live with um and you learn to accept it and uh, you find something good in it um you find something good in the time that you have spent with your family and and what what that has meant to you and how you can keep that legacy alive that's what it's important and that's probably why i wanted to write that album and i pretty much played most of the instruments on it myself I had guests come in and do little bits and pieces, of course, and that was a that was a, a tip of the hat to uh, Paul McCartney, I think, because McCartney used to do that all the time. I always admired that about him. Gives you a great understanding of how music of, of music and arranging and writing and playing and performing. If you if you try to pick up someone else's instrument, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're lucky, and we're lucky too, because we get to listen to it. That you have that musical outlet to express your feelings in that moment in time how does it feel listening to it now after you know that period of time has passed in your life um does it still put you back there or does this have the songs kind of taken on a life of their own apart from that that kind of thing you wanted to exercise it's an interesting question i don't I don't know. I really thought about it like that. I I do think it. I, I I'm very fond of the record. I like to listen to it. I do get nostalgic when I hear it. I think I see what has changed. It's a little bit like going back. Imagine that you go back to an old diary and you open a, a page and you read it and you 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 ask yourself how 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 have you changed since then? Um, so there's that part of it. But there is also the part the part that when you when you create anything. You can go back and you can adjust it and adjust it. And there's a certain point in time you have to abandon it. You have to leave it because it is a moment in time. And so, you know, otherwise you, you can't really move past it. So, you know, if you want to do another record, go write another record. But you get to a point where you have to say, okay, this is done. And I would like to, you know, leave it there. And, you know, with my, my songwriting, I mean, I've always written for every band I've been in. Um, and I've written stuff I'm very proud of. Some, you know, shot the, songs like Shot in the Dark are, are, are a big hit. Um, but uh, you don't really have control over whether a song's going to be a big hit or not. I, you know, some of my favorite songs I wrote, for example, on Steve Lukather's album. Uh, some of my favorite songs I've written for other people. Some, some stuff I wrote for Vince Neil that was, that was, that was terrific. Um, and I'm very proud of. Uh, so you have to... Um, you know, the, the, the song, you write the song because you want to write the song, not because you, you expect it to be a hit or you expect it to be well, you know, expect it to be accepted. But when you look back at the songs that you've written, 
you realize that if they're well if they're well written that they do they they do have a meaning and they do have a um uh, a special um milestone um they have a, a milestone significance in a, in in the course of your life uh, and I write about my life. I write about my, my experiences. I write about my emotions. I write about what I feel. That's what I write about. And then I spend hours and hours trying to extract myself from the song. You throw yourself into everything that you do. I know as a songwriter, as a lyricist, um, and you've performed with so many great names and you have a career that's taken you all over the world. But you have also worn a few other hats that you put a lot of yourself into, including a restaurateur, chef, a post audio mixer for film. I know you were a camp counselor at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp and you were the vice president um, of, on the Grammys board. Um, so, I mean, are you someone who always has to be busy? Is there anything that you like to do when you're not working that doesn't also turn into a career? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I do like to be busy all the time and bad things happen if I'm not busy. Um, I don't like, I, I don't, I don't like to sit around not doing something because it, it drives me nuts. Um, and I just feel, I, I don't know, maybe I'm ADD or something. My brain starts racing like crazy and I start trying to think of things, but you know, if I if I'm a, if I'm not doing anything, it's 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 really a bad time. You know, dogs start sleeping with cats and stuff like this. It's not good, and so it's it, it's it's my own interest. I like to to I like to do crazy stuff. I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd. I like to know about how things work. I, I like to fix things. I like to build things. And you you just named it. I mean, all of the things, all of the above. You know, I really throw myself into stuff. Um, and I find the world's just an amazing place. It, there's so much to learn. There's so much to know, so much to do, so much to experience, so much to try my hand at. I feel like it's a fairground. You want to take a, you want to go on every single ride. And um, I just don't understand the people who, who just don't want to do that. But I guess that's what makes people different, you know? Some people are quite happy to be, you know, to do. Yeah, have one job and keep one. it that. Yeah. Yeah, and then just sit there and relax. Maybe they're happier than I am. Maybe they're much more calm and much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in that way, I, I suppose I'm envious a little bit. But it's 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 nice, you know, to to be content. I'm just always looking for something else. I want, you know, I always want more. And uh, it's not about you know materialistic wanting more. It's about wanting to learn more, wanting to know more, wanting to to find out more. So um, I'm very curious. Inquisitive, so. Well, I it's. I don't know if it's bad. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, uh, I feel like uh, you must have really changed some lives through being a counselor at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, and you've made some changes on the Grammy board. I mean, that must have been really gratifying. Yeah, the Grammy board. Um, being VP of the Grammys was uh, uh, was uh, was an incredible opportunity for me to. To, it was two things. It was an opportunity for me to give back. I was very grateful for Music Cares, who helped my dear late friend Randy Castillo, drummer with Ozzy, who was battling cancer for a long time, and they really helped him out. And you know, while he still ended up passing away, if it wasn't for their help, I, I know things would have been much more uncomfortable and worse for him. So I really wanted to kind of give back to the Grammys, and it was also interesting in terms of creative creative visualization, which. I had gone past a Grammy booth at a NAMM show one day and said, you know, I'd love to be involved with the Grammys. Uh, on what level, I don't know, but a few years later, I'm vice president. So 
if you really want to do something and you creatively visualize it, I'm convinced that every little sub-decision that you make in your life will somehow nudge you towards that goal and eventually you can do anything you want. And that's what I firmly believe. Um, so getting onto the board of the Grammys, I was participant in three big, big things. Um, one of them was the white spaces issue, which was a bill that protected the various frequency bands that we use for live concerts. And in this day and age, I'm sure you're well aware, everyone's like struggling for frequency bands because everything's wireless and everything's, you know, we need to have drones and we need to have all kinds of nonsense and stuff. But that was one thing. The other thing was the, uh, the PRA, the Performance Rights Act, which dealt with compensating artists for radio play, which we've never done in the United States for almost 100 years. We've never done it. It's done all over the world, but, but for the United States. It's very, the United States was very backward in that respect. And I'm glad to you know, see that it got transitioned into what was called the Music Modernization Act, the MMA, which was actually uh, written into law by Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of people had not uh, had always paid lip service to this, but he was the one who actually went ahead and said, no, nope, this makes perfect sense and signed it. So very grateful that that became a reality and now we protect artists when they get their radio play. It's not just songwriters. Um, and, um, and then I did a lot of uh, grassroots uh, fundraising for Music Cares. So once I'd done all that and I was on the board for what, almost eight years, uh, I was uh, I, I gracefully bowed out of the Grammys. It was a lot of work, and uh, went back to uh, doing what I do. So it was it was a, a very cathartic thing to do, and I think it was I was very happy that I did that. I am too. It sounds like you did a lot of good, and you're still doing good by performing live and entertaining folks like me. Um, I could talk to you forever and ever, but we do have to wrap this up. So since yep. this is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, I have to ask you, what is your rock and roll nightmare? So I gave this some thought. You know, there's, there's, there's two parts to this. There's the, there's the rock and roll nightmare in terms of like the, the, uh, the personal biggest fears that I have. And then there's the rock and roll nightmares of really bizarre stuff that happens to you. <laughs> I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of those. I do. I mean, the 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 fear thing. I think is uh, is uh, um, I, when I was playing with Johnny Halliday. Uh, very quickly, I was uh, I was uh, out one night with a guy who owns a restaurant and having a great time going around bars and restaurants, and drinking and drinking more than I should have been, and we ended up in this music supper club environment. And I turned around, and the next thing I knew, the guy was up on stage introducing me and calling me up on stage to play, but. The only instrument up there was a piano, which I'm not really a pianist. I mean, I play, I write on piano, but it's not something I could perform. And all of a sudden I was rather, rather buzzed in front of a big <laughs> crowd of people who were deathly silent, expecting to be entertained by, I was going to, I don't know what I was supposed to play, some Paul Anker stuff or something, but uh, I don't know. I just noodled around for a while and then got up, bowed, slammed the lid shut, and <laughs> got out of there as quickly as possible. Um, but the other one was that the real nightmare story I think was on road with Ozzy and uh, there was a knock at the door of my hotel room after I'd gotten into my, in my into my room and I went to open the door without checking and a guy barged in with a 10 inch bowie knife uh, and uh, I didn't know what to do I thought the guy was gonna kill me and uh, he was like a, an Aussie fan and I, it turned out I I, I, I went into uh, I, I've spent my whole childhood 
hanging out with uh, a very, very different uh, wide range of people from, from the sort of people you don't really want to hang around with or see on a dark night to, 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 to the other extreme. And I went into, into that mode. I went into crazy mode. And I said, hey, come on in, sit down. And I started talking to him and he got out of jail and uh, he had missed, he wanted to see the show and missed the show. So he figured he'd come to my hotel room and I wasn't going to address the fact that he had a knife in his hand. I just ignored it. Uh, and after about a couple of hours of, of loading him up with stories and me memorabilia and cigarettes and whatever else, I told him I had to go to bed and he left, gave me a big hug and said, walked out the door. That was, that was probably my most fearful nightmare that came out. Wow, yeah, that's quite a story that yeah. you kind of diffused that human time bomb. You know, when people act crazy towards you, the best thing you can do is act crazier than them. <laughs> and wow. Think, you know, if somebody starts yelling at you across the street, you yell back at them. Start yelling and act completely crazy. And then they're, okay, this person's even wackier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> It crazy people they they kind of prey on fear you know i mean when people are aggressive i think they prey on fear and if they're not getting the fearful response it's not working i might be i might be completely wrong about this you have to ask my wife about this cause she's, uh, your wife is a psychologist isn't she yes she is i never studied psychology i don't know but i think that the motivation behind people you know being aggressive is is to is is to you know to to get a fearful reaction now where can people uh hopefully those without knives find you online and um where can they listen to and download last in line music well the best place to go and find last in line music uh is uh is uh, last in line uh, uh .com. and uh, to get to find me i am on facebook at Phil Susan official, and I'm also on Instagram at, at Phil Susan, and uh, that's uh, that's yeah that's where you can find everything. Um, Last in Line does also have a Facebook page. You can look there as well. Uh, find information. And that's where we can see live shows that are coming up and whatnot. Live shows coming up. People can buy VIP experiences if they would like to do so. We we do do VIPs at every show. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool because they get to come into our sound check and they get to experience us sound checking as well as everything else that we do. So uh, it's, a, it's a good time because we have a, uh, you know, we, we are going to have a new album coming out after the summer and we have an EP coming out uh, in, uh, it, I believe it is released, uh, this pre-order I think is in March 22nd. Uh, it's going to be called A Day in the Live. And it's about uh, it's a, it's got some live tracks on it, and it has some additional bonus tracks and stuff, which I can't really talk too much about. But it's going to be very exciting. There is a, uh, a sneak track off the the new album that we just had to put on there, and then there's a, a cover song, which is all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Well, stay tuned for that. Well, thank you, Phil, for joining me on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I really appreciate it, and thank hope you. to have you back on sometime after the album comes out. Absolutely, Stacy. Thank you so much. As always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from the nonfiction edition, and the chapter is Magical Mystery Tour. 
When you're watching a magic show, you are allowing yourself to be tricked, to be seduced by the sleight of hand. Rock stars are magicians in some ways, creating illusions as if guided by a cosmic higher power. This apparent immortality is why fans reported seeing Elvis Presley at a Kalamazoo, Michigan Burger King 11 years after his death, and why, decades after the king left the building, he is listed as still occupying Suite 210 at the Columbia Plaza Hotel of East Michigan Avenue, which is now an office building. Why would Elvis haunt, whether alive or dead, Kalamazoo? Because of the Gibson Guitar Factory, of course. Some rockers have pulled disappearing acts, not just in a reclusive way like Pink Floyd's Sid Barrett, who took a powder after taking too much acid, but literally disappeared. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film, Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>